Perfect Stranglers contains graphic and explicit content suitable for mature listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Perfect Stranglers. This is Kylie. And I'm Bree. And I'm Nicole. Wow, that was very spirited for a Saturday morning. Wow. I also have not had, I have not had any coffee. I'm running on strictly <gasps> lavender tea. My uterus feels like it's about to fall out. Oh. So, this is Nicole, you and I are, you and I are always on the same situation with that. I will get I will up. get my shark I will get my shark week next week. <laughs> so you know is. what my mom always Yeah, there she is. So my mom always called the week before you have shark week. By the way, I call it shark week, not for the blood. But because the female reproductive system is the same I think it's the same as a shark's. Or it's the same as a shark's brain. Or it's what? the same as a shark. <laughs> Hold on. No, there's a reason. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> System. I'm pretty sure a shark does not have my uterus in its head. No, hold on. No. Okay, the female reproductive system. Okay, the female reproductive system is almost identical in look to a shark's brain. What? That's why. Yes. That's so so I heard that. I heard that such a long time ago. I was in high school when I learned that, and since then I've called it Shark Week. Yeah. I it's mean, literally almost identical to the shape That's of so a female weird. reproductive system interesting so yeah the more you know um but anyway my mom always called like the week before eat week because you want to eat everything in sight <laughs> yeah Sounds yeah right. yeah was so very week. yeah i'm very happy i'm getting sushi today because you know mm. you know me on this sushi kick on that sushi kick what was i gonna say so it's, right now we're recording on a saturday morning we usually don't do this. We usually record on Sunday nights, but we had some issues a couple weeks ago recording, and I feel like this is a better time to record for Nicole for our cases today. Yeah, in the daylight. For our case today, in the daylight. Thank yes. You. <laughs> I still have all the lights on in my house, by the way. Still really? Still have them all on. Hell yeah. Okay, well. Just in case. Oh. You never, well, know, um, you never know when there's going to be a random eclipse and it's going to get real dark outside. <laughs> you know, because science, but... You know, science, yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be so fucking scary if all of a sudden there was a random eclipse and no one knew about it? Right? How scary would that be? Just everything goes dark. Uh, I hate space shit. I hate, like, s- space stuff. I Aliens hate it. Aliens are 100 like, percent like... real? Oh, aliens are one hundo real, and that scares the shit out of me. There is a show that I watch called The Dead Files, and Amy oh. on there once once went to a house, and she asked, "Okay, so if you've never seen The Dead Files, it's like my second favorite to ghost adventures." And there's Steve Dushavi, and he's an ex New York um, homicide detective. That's he goes, "I'm Steve Dushavi." That's what he sounds like. And then there's Amy Allen, and she is a world-renowned um, medium. And so they will cover any leading information throughout the house like pictures religious artifacts all of that stuff um the guy who she works with who's like her ex-husband will cover everything and she'll go into the house not knowing the location and just read it and say what she feels what she sees that type of thing steve will go and do all of the research talk to historians the family of the house that we're researching all of that then they come together at the end at the table and sit down with the family and Amy will say what she found, and then Steve will be like, yep, that sounds like this guy, and she'll, like, do a sketch, and a lot of times the sketch that she has drawn looks exactly like a picture that Steve will show of someone who lived in the house previously. It's wild. It is fucking wild. Um, But anyway, one time she went to a house, and she asked them, she's like, she basically said, you guys are being abducted, pretty much this, it was a, I think it was a child, is pretty much being abducted a couple times a week and she's like have you guys ever heard of the grays and shock on their face and steve's face are like this isn't paranormal as what we think paranormal is this is fucking aliens and she's like yeah this is aliens 
that was their problem was fucking aliens i have the full body chills right now oh my god Bree's face yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it is. I don't know what the episode is. I ha- I saw it so long ago, but that scares the shit out of me. And then there's an episode. If you guys have never heard of the Skinwalker Ranch, maybe we should do an episode on it because oh, it's scary. That creeps but there's me an out episode too. Of, Just even an episode of, the name Skinwalker, like ugh. yeah. There's an episode me of, of uh, Bree's description of Richard Ramirez. It's <laughs> the <laughs> Oh, what did I say? <laughs> he like, looks like a bag of skin or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. A, skin a skeleton. Over a, a skeleton. Yeah. 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 Um, but there's an episode <laughs> of Ghost Adventures where they go to um, Skinwalker Ranch and they meet a family and the family just talks about aliens. And that was their problem was aliens. Oh, my and God. If I, I love remember... that episode so much. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because one yeah. of them like, okay. goes up on a mountain and like sits there. Yes, Billy. They just send Billy up to a mountain. He's just like chilling there, like wanting to be abducted. But they catch some weird shit in that house. Yeah, like it's 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 one of the weirder episodes that I've seen. Um, But anyway, yeah, aliens creep. Like they scare me so much. They scare me, but I'm also like, I want to meet you. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I just like picture really tall, skinny, like gray slugs walking around. <laughs> I don't know why. Really? I don't. When, okay, when I think of like, I mean, obviously, when you say like the grays, like yeah, I'm sure that's what I picture. But when I picture aliens, like I don't picture them like that. I picture them like the big head and the big eyes. And no, whatever. Do you know well, what I, I picture? picture? I what? picture yeah. the Lisa Frank aliens. <laughs> <laughs> remember those oh my god i love that so much honestly i just picture like blue people like blue blue like avatar no 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 not like avatar almost like um like a dusty bluish gray yeah okay more blue and like more like okay, you know what? Um, the the like leader one from Lilo and Stitch, that's more yeah. like with like wise, full of wisdom, maybe a little saucy, but all in all, just here to find out what the fuck is happening on this shitty planet. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I mean, there's lots of different types of. Aliens. I don't know what we to, should do. I don't know what episode. to follow. Oh my god, that one we're recording during the day. Because yeah. <laughs> that scares also, me more than anything I've talked about. And I know I talk about the weird shit. <laughs> also, I think my obsession with Lilo and Stitch when I was little really fueled a desire for aliens to be, like, fun creatures, like, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I don't think that they're fun. I don't think that an alien would be fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like just by saying this over and over again, they're listening. Possibly. Hi, fun aliens. I love you. Don't listen. Do don't not fucking listen to me. her. Don't anal probe me. me. Make it for don't. research. Oh, my God. <laughs> we saved her brain for research. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, we are not talking about that type of creepy shit today. We are talking about creepy shit that Kylie can handle and Nicole can't. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Okay, so today we're going to chit chat about Amityville. (laughs) I am super stoked about this. I don't know about you, but I am excited. It's a classic. It has everything besides aliens that we could ask for. It has murder. It has demons. It has the Warrens. It has, well, that's really what it has, but that's everything I care about. So (laughs) you ready to get into it, ladies? Yep. No, Nicole looks like she's going to cry. All right. Sorry, I took a drink. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right. So. 
On November 13th, 1974, uh, Ron DeFeo shot and killed his entire family in their home located at 112 Ocean Avenue, which is like such an emo kid thing to say right now. <laughs> right? Ocean like Avenue. The yellow card song. <laughs> yes. Every time I was like reading this and I saw Ocean Avenue, I was like, God, bring me back. <laughs> God, I want to, I really want to dress like an emo kid nowadays. Yeah. Like I have a, I still have a studded belt. I wear black skinny jeans. I should just go full emo. I just ordered Avenged Sevenfold shirts. Nice. God, I'm going full emo you now. Are. <laughs> I don't I don't think there is one. And I, I don't think there's and I just an if in I, this situation. It's just No, one. oh my god, and I just colored my hair purple with pink ends. Uh-huh. <gasps> oh my god, emo Kylie is making a comeback and I feel so myself. Yes. Holy fuck. I'm so into it. Anyway, okay. <laughs> huh. 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. So this murder was an absolute shock in that community because Amityville, which is about an hour outside of Manhattan on Long Island, which I didn't know. I thought Amityville was in like upstate New York. I didn't realize that it's literally in Manhattan and like relatively close to New York City. Mm-hmm. I had no clue. I, fe- I thought that was just like really weird for some reason. Um, Did you say Long Island was... or Staten Island? Uh a uh, Long Island. Okay. Um, so that city was like a standard, like safe, like quote, safe feeling suburban upper middle class area, good schools, big houses, and a feeling of community. Um, and Ron was actually the person to call into the police department and state that he had found his family dead. And at that point, he was believed to be like the one lucky survivor of it all because he wasn't home. So when the police walked into the house, they found all six bodies. So his mom, Louise, and his dad, Ronald DeFeo Sr., his siblings, 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, 9-year-old John Matthew. Um, All six bodies were laid in the exact same way. They were all laying on their stomach. So police questioned then 23-year-old Ron. So the dad's name is Ron Sr. And Ron is Ron Jr., but I'm just going to call him Ron because we don't really talk about the dad much. Um, So police questioned Ron, the oldest son, and this is what he initially told police of what happened that night. So he said after a night out at the bar, he walked in and found his parents and siblings all shot dead in their beds. Um, and once he had realized what happened, according to, there's a book on this called American Mass Murderers that talks about this. Um, Ron went back into the bar at about 6.30 a.m. yelling like, you guys, you got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. And some customers that were still at the bar actually followed him back into the house. And so those people also became witnesses to the murder and saw the scene inside. And there are some actual interviews of people saying, yeah, Ron just like came into the bar and started yelling and saying that his family was shot dead. And we were like, hell yeah, let's go help. So yeah, so this happened a short enough time to go ago where there are interviews of pretty much everyone that is still alive that has happened in here. There's interviews of people talking about this whole situation from the murders to the haunting. So some background on Ron, Uh, his father was abusive, domineering, and his mom was like quiet, meek, and just kind of like in the background. Basically, she just existed and she was overshadowed by Ron Sr.'s overbearing personality. So because of this dynamic, Ron turned to using drugs and alcohol to cope with the abuse that was going on at home. Ron ended up lashing out physically and he even threatened his father with a gun. So Ron's parents' solution to Ron Jr. having a really hard time dealing with the issues at home was to give him a weekly allowance of gifts and money to appease him and pretty much persuade him to not lash out. Wait, so Ron Sr. was like, here's some shit, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Oh, wow. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a Um, rich people thing. Yeah. Well, the house is... I don't know if you guys have seen the house mm-hmm. or the neighborhood, but it's a very it's... nice neighborhood. Yeah. 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 So by 18, Ron held a job at the family-owned car dealership, but he just, like, never showed up to his shift. So he was on payroll and just, like, never showed up. Yeah. Um, so... I want that kind of like, That's another I rich person thing. 
Yes, that is definitely another rich person thing. Um, so the night of the murders, Ron went out after work with some friends, which was a normal thing for him at their usual bar. And that night at the bar, Ron kept trying to call the house on the bar phone because there's no cell phones back then. And he would call and he would complain loud enough for people to hear around him that nobody was picking up the phone, which was definitely him trying to set himself up as like an alibi and as like the quote survivor of the situation. Um, which didn't work out for him. So it was determined uh, that all of the victims were shot around 3.15 a.m. with a high-powered rifle, and after the police questioned Ron and heard about his alibi being at the bar and they investigated the scene, things weren't really adding up. There is no sign of a struggle on any of the bodies. Ron had said someone broke into the home, but there was no sign of a break-in anywhere, and very strangely, no neighbors who were in close proximity or awake at the time heard any guns at all. And they um, they did hear a dog barking at that time, though. And a gun is definitely louder than a dog. Yeah. Definitely. Unless um, you have a silencer. But... Listen, so there was no silencer <laughs> on the gun. So oh. if they could hear the dog barking around this time, they should have heard the gun. And it was later determined that the killings took 15 minutes with approximately nine shots total in 15 minute time frame with a dog barking. All of that happened between 3 and 3.15 a.m. So there's no reason for them to not hear the gunshots. That's also kind of a long time. Doesn't that seem like a long time? Yeah. And it doesn't take that long to shoot a person. To to shoot how many people? Five people? Um, six people, but there was nine shots total. So the other question that people have is why didn't any of the other family wake up? Yeah. Yeah. And that was never really answered. Yeah. That was never really answered of why. And like the time frame that it took, we'll kind of touch on that in a little bit of why, um, he thinks it took so long and what happened on his side of things when he was going through that situation. Um, so with all of this coming into question and the time frame of the killings at 3.15 a.m. and then the discovery of the bodies at 6.30 a.m., his alibi was definitely like falling short. Ron did end up changing his story multiple times over the course of the investigation. Initially, he blamed a well-known hitman who actually had a solid alibi of being out of town during the murders. Eventually, Ron did... Con- yeah, he um, he blamed a hitman. <laughs> so eventually Ron did confess to the killings, and he did so by stating himself, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. So to him, like 15 minutes to us is like, why would it take 15 minutes to kill six people? But to him, it, it that's not that long of time. You know what I mean? So to him, it went fast. I mean, I guess and... when your adrenaline is going and stuff like that, like... I don't know. I'm yeah. still on this train of like it's been like it. That's that's a long time. That's a long time. I mean, it is a long time, honestly. It is, but like to him, it's it seemed to have gone really quickly. And I mean, yeah. I mean I've okay. never I've never killed six people, so I wouldn't know how that would feel. So right, true. You know, he also let the investigators know the time frame of three to three fifteen a.m. So his attorney, William Weber, gave an insanity plea, sitting that the defendant heard voices telling him to kill his family during the trial, which started on October 14th, 1975. The prosecution argued that while Ron was troubled, he knew what he was doing when he committed the Amityville murders, and he was eventually convicted of six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six concurrent sentences of 25 years to life. So in a later version of Ron's story that kind of seemed to change every few years, um, both during the trial and after the conviction, he alleges that his sister Dawn killed their father and then their like distraught mom killed all of the siblings. So in this scenario, Ron only killed his mother. So then in another story, um, Ron said in 1990 that Dawn shot all of the DeFeos before, Ron, before Dawn killed herself and then he discovered that situation as she like killed herself. So I think it's fair to say that none of that happened, but that he he changes his story, and every time he changes his story, it puts Dawn as the murderer of the majority of people. Um, but the story that really stuck was that Ron, upon being the subject of demonic infestation, possibly possession, was hearing voices that told him to kill his family. So on the stand during the trial, he actually states that he heard voices telling him to commit the murders. And so he saw a pitch black shadow figure 
and the shadow figure put the rifle in his hands that night. So what I think took so long and what it alluded to in like the documentaries and stuff that I watched is that he saw this pitch black shadow figure put the rifle in his hands that night and move room to room when he killed his family. So I think he would shoot and he just had this black entity following him that was kind of like slowing him down a little bit. So yeah, I think that that's really what possibly took it. If this shadow figure, let's just say that the shadow figure existed, for example. I think that's probably what would have taken 15 minutes is him being like followed around and possessed by this thing. And I feel like he was probably moving in a very robotic way doing this very like methodically moving through the motions and doing it if that is truly what happened and i think that's probably what took so long um so after the murders the house was left vacant for 13 months and that's when the lutz family moved in so for this part of the case i got the majority of my information from a documentary on discovery plus my new favorite best friend um it's called shock docs amityville horror so it's a great documentary. There is a lot of interviews that happen in it. Voices of the Lutz family. It's it's really good. Um, so the house remained vacant, like I said, for 13 months until the family moved in. They moved in in 1975 for $88,000 was how much they purchased the home for. Today, that would be $441,651. So Welcome it's an expensive Welcome to America. House. Yeah. It's an expensive house. Yeah. So the Lutzes were a blended family. Both George and Kathy had been married previously. Kathy also had three three kids from her previous marriage. Danny, who was nine, Chris, who was seven, and Missy, um, who was five. George described the home in an interview that it had like beautiful worksmanship and Kathy said that she immediately fell in love with the house and she said it was very charming. Um and it looks charming from the outside. Um back then though it had Back then, it had like these weird windows. Yeah, though. like they they, yeah, they have it was, changed like, the black. windows. Yes, those and black siding. Yeah, those windows, like th- those are Amityville horror windows. Like that's what <laughs> yes. they are now. Like <laughs> that's yes, <laughs> they are. They're iconic. They are, yes, they are. Um, so uh, one thing I found interesting is in the documentary I was watching, Jeff Ballinger, who's a par- he's a, a world-renowned paranormal investigator, he said, when the devil is depicted in TVs and movies and books, he's charming. He's always the most interesting one in the room. So for them to be so enamored and charmed by something so evil is absolutely frightening. And that, when I heard that, that gave me chills. Because that's true. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the broker who showed them the home didn't tell them that the murders happened in the home until they fell in love with the house. Of course. Yeah. Um, so George, who is a former Marine and not easily scared by anything because he's a man, uh, <laughs> wasn't scared. And they weren't superstitious at all. They talked to the kids about it and they all collectively decided that there's nothing to be scared of. Let's move in. So upon moving in and part of their mortgage agreement... The home had all of the furniture from when the murders happened in the house. Oh, no. Even the even the bed frames where the children were killed. No, oh, ma'am. The Lutzes, the Lutzes kept everything. They kept it all. Oh, mm-hmm. come on. Also, I wonder now, what, the, what, what was the discussion like with the kids? Like, I have no idea. You know idea. what I mean? Like, hey, kids, so... This happened. Especially, like, how do you say that to a five-year-old? Because right. Missy was five. Right. Yeah, like I, I could not know. imagine. Someone so died energy in can your be true. Here, go to sleep. Here you go. Right, right. Ninety-nine. So energy can be trapped in furniture, rocks, whatever that make up a foundation and floorboards. So that's called the stone tape theory. Basically, natural elements like wood and stone absorbs energy and mental thoughts from past experiences and replays it in the form of like supernatural phenomena. So that would be like a residual haunting, like a tape playing over and over again. So by them keeping all of this stuff and using it, they're basically setting themselves up for a bad time, dancing with the devil, if you will. (laughs) But really, like, so the stone tape theory is really hard to prove and a it's hard to prove. There's a lot of information on it. If you ever want to Google it, check it out. It's a very interesting theory. Um, I believe it to a certain extent. Um, but really, what they shouldn't have kept that stuff. No. It's that's gross. No, too. that's just weird. That's just weird. Yeah. 
So George's friend, who was totally fucking freaked out by their willingness to live in this house, insisted that they get the home blessed. Yeah. And Ron wasn't a Catholic. He didn't really know much about it, so he just contacted a local priest that he knew about. You mean George? Oh, yeah, you said uh, Ron. <laughs> yeah, you said Ron. Oh, Jesus, I said Ron. Sorry. Ron's the killer. I had that okay. issue. Yeah, Ron's the killer. This is George. I've had that issue. I had that issue typing this out. So George, George's friend, who was freaked out by their willingness, uh, didn't want to live the house, um, didn't know a lot about how to bless a house, so he contacted the priest. And I just want to put in a listener's note here, people. Don't think you can bless or sage your own home. It's not something you should be doing. Like a Ouija board, you shouldn't fucking be doing it. You could just be pissing something off. An experienced person should be doing those things. It's called religious provocation for a reason. A blessing is religious provocation. You shouldn't be doing it unless you know what you're doing. And I'm just going to leave that at that. Don't be dumb. So Father Ray, who George knew from his previous marriage, uh, agrees to bless the home and begins going from room to room. Once he gets to Kathy's sewing room, which is where um, Mark and John DeFeo were murdered, Father Ray gets super uncomfortable. And he stated in an interview from a 1979 TV show called In Search Of, um, he said, I was blessing the sewing room and it was cold. And I thought, gee, this is peculiar. I even typed out G. Um, this is peculiar because it was a lovely day out and it was winter but it didn't account as that type of coldness so basically it felt like you ever hear like chilled to the bone where you just like cannot warm up no matter what yeah. it was like that so he starts um making it rain with holy water in the room and he hears what sounds like a guttural deep man voice yell get out oh, when he starts making you. it rain when he starts making it rain and he was the only one who could hear this and um he basically said it was directed right towards me and he said he was like really scared because he's never encountered that before so in the movies it shows the room being swarmed with flies and in real life the, this did actually happen a few times um so there were dozens of flies just randomly in there basically coming out of thin air as he did the blessing now remember this is winter in new york it's cold like, it's cold, so there shouldn't be flies. Um, so as Father Ray gets the hell out of that room and bolts downstairs, he tells the Lutzes nothing of what just happened, and he just let, he just leaves. What? He didn't tell them anything. <laughs> he just let, he's like, yep, I blessed the room. Peace, Peace out, bitches, and left. <laughs> right. Yeah. Have he a blessed day. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Bye. <laughs> just fucking stress sweating out of the, out of the house. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So the Lutzes officially move in on December 18th, 1975. And the first few days were great. Um, uh, but as the kids started going to school and the other kids were talking, they were basically telling them that they lived in the murder house. And since this was a new experience for them living all together, new school, new home, things were very tense and very heavy just right off the bat. So the energy created by the family itself was very negative and negative energy can invite negative energy mm -hmm. and it just wasn't a good situation so on december 21st four days into staying there george is awakened abruptly at 3 15 a.m every single night this far he has been awoken at that time um so that's also the time that the murders happen and it's also the witching hour which we have talked about so kathy at this point is also having very graphic dreams about the murders she knows where the bullet holes were in what order the murders happened she can see it happening in her dreams george ends up getting violent about a few days in so about four or five days in he gets violent with the kids he's disciplining them physically like spanking um he's spanking them with spoons he's dragging the kids around the house by their arms there's personalities changes it's anger he has heavy anxiety and depression and this is all apparent in the first week of their 28 days there so the next day december 22nd george is complaining about how cold the house is and he cannot stay warm for the life of him no matter how big he builds the fire in the fireplace it's like that chill that father ray mentioned and George says he's surprised that the house didn't burn down by how big he made the fire. He just couldn't warm up. So the same day, Kathy is cooking in the kitchen and two of the kids start screaming from the upstairs. And so she bolts upstairs and sees Danny and Chris looking into the toilet bowl. And there is a thick black stain, like tar that seemed to be embedded into the, you know how you do like toilet bowl cleaner yeah. around the bowl? It looked like that, only it was like a thick black goo. Um, so the stains are found. 
<laughs> yeah. So the, the stains are found in all of the bathrooms. And it's at this time that Kathy goes into the sewing room and also encounters all of a sudden dozens of flies in the dead of winter in this room. So interestingly, when the police went through the house the night of the murders, also in the winter, they saw the same thing, but in excess of hundreds of flies swarming the entire home. Ew. Like this is in their police report. Like the yeah. only reason for that would be like if something is rotting but if it was like a cleared out home that somebody was about to move into like you know yeah where could that even be coming from right and when the police went in there from the bodies the house was a normal house and the bodies had only been in there for a few hours there was no right decomposition happening yeah yeah so the police did report that there were like hundreds of flies in the home so a human haunting will like move small objects, tap things. It doesn't really cause mental changes or illness unless you're like scared of it. Um, but a dark entity that was never human to begin with can cause manifestation manif- manifestations of ectoplasm, which would be like that black goo around the toilet, move large objects, break you down physically and mentally, causing illness, like physical illness and mental illness issues. Um, So a couple days later on Christmas, George is once again jolted awake at 3.15 a.m. I don't really know the context of this, but somehow he notices that the boathouse door was open. And like, I know for me, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get back back to bed, sometimes I'll like wander around or just like, you know, get up and stretch or something mm-hmm. um so he notices that it was open and he's like what the fuck so he gets up and he goes outside and as he shuts the door and turns around walks back towards the home he sees someone it looks like a person but not quite a person move in missy's room so in an absolute fucking panic he runs into the house and runs into missy's room um to see who's in his daughter's room and when he enters nothing is there she's sound asleep he said at this point he was definitely feeling the need to question his own sanity because it's like five or six days in or whatever 18 maybe 10 days i guess um and he's like i don't know what's going on i'm seeing things i'm feeling things i can't get warm like what the fuck so the next day missy is playing in her room and kathy hears missy who's five talking to someone and this is strange because there's nobody really up there with her so kathy goes up and stands by the door with the door open and just peeks in to check in on missy and missy is talking to a rocking chair that is actively rocking back and forth no and you could hear you could hear another voice talking but you couldn't see anything and it was at this time when missy so kathy got george and missy told george and kathy about jody so missy asked kathy do angels talk referring to her new friend as an angel which is something positive as we discussed in another episode demonic entities show themselves as something inviting to you non-threatening and friendly and they prey on vulnerable people like children so missy then told george and kathy that jody is a pig so sometimes she's as small as a mouse and sometimes she's bigger than the entire home and a pig is super significant um because in the bible there's a story in the book of matthew about jesus casting demons out of men and sending them into a herd of pigs where they end up drowning so jason hawes who's another very credible paranormal investigator he said he's been doing this for um 30 years and he said as long as i've ever known demonic entities have always been referred to as hooved creatures like pigs so Jody presenting herself as a pig, whether small or fucking huge, and Missy not being scared of it in the least is just another sign of demonic possession of the home or people. It's very scary. So at this point, they're nine days into staying in the home and they basically feel powerless. Everyone in the house has experienced something major. So they invite Father Ray back and eventually he tells them about what happened in the this sewing room. motherfucker. <laughs> yep, eventually he says it. Um, and he refuses to come back to the home because after he got home from doing the first blessing, he started to develop blisters all around his hands and his wrists. Like he had been touched and dragged. Um, he went to the doctor and the doctor could not explain where they came from. Besides, the doctor just said, you have anxiety, which is (laughs) such a coverall, which is such a coverall for anything weird that happens. Like you must have anxiety. Go sleep it off. Yeah. So he was 
very scared. Uh, so day 10, George awakes again at 3.15 a.m. to a noise so loud. He said it sounded like a marching band tuning their instruments. Like r- He was like standing in a marching band of tuning instruments is what it sounded like to him. He said it was just deafening. He looks over at Kathy. Kathy's just fucking sleeping. <laughs> she hears nothing. So George starts walking downstairs because he just needs to get away from the sound. As he got halfway down the stairs, the noise just stops. And the dog that they have is just sleeping downstairs. It was like there was a barrier to the noise and he just got past a certain point and it was just quiet. That's really so weird. It's so bizarre. Right? Everything in the story is really fucking weird. So the next day, Kathy is moving a bookshelf in the basement because this home has a basement and of course it's creepy. So she's moving a bookshelf in the basement and she finds behind this bookshelf a small room and it has very, very brightly painted walls. The dog, Harry, is absolutely freaked out by the room and becomes very territorial and refuses to go anywhere near the space. So Harry would, like, growl at it and then submit. And then growl at it and then submit again. Don't like that. Don't, no, don't like that. Um, So as she moves the bookcase, a very, very awful putrid smell wafts out of the room. And it was something that they hadn't smelled until now. And there was nothing in the room. There was nothing rotting in the room. Um, but it was later found out that on top of the flies, that putrid rotten smell was happening as the police entered the home of the murders. Hmm. Which is creepy. It so is creepy. I'm assuming and dead bodies I'm don't a- smell after only three hours. Right. Not nope, that bad. But you want to know what you know? What smells like sulfur? Demons. True. Mm-hmm. So after uh, opening that room, they were finding ectoplasm that was like a sticky, wet walls, or sticky and wet, like on the walls throughout the home. Sometimes it was different colors or textures, but it was showing up every morning now. And it was either a black tar or like epoxy like glue. It was in the toilet. It was dripping from all of the keyholes in the room. George said that sometimes it was green, sometimes it was clear, but it was dripping out of like the light the light switches, the keyholes, the toilets. It was just showing up every morning. They would clean it off and it would show up the next day. So I wonder January what it 14... tastes like. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You know what I imagine it probably tastes like? Salt. Yeah, that's no, why it wouldn't That's what I was gonna say. Think... Like kinda salty. But see now, would it taste like salt? Because you're supposed to use salt to ward away from bad things. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I think Hmm. of it like, um, I've never tasted this, but whatever you have to drink to clear your system before a colonoscopy. Mm. (laughs) That shit's nasty. That shit's nasty. That shit is disgusting. (laughs) That's what I would say to you. I can't. I I can't even describe what that. I've had to have a colonoscopy, and I can't even describe to you what it tastes like. Um, but when I had mine, my uh, aunt Cindy was like, "Well, get some get some lemon popsicles and make sure you eat that, and you can put a little crystal light in there." And I was like, "Okay." It's like when you have a a, a room that someone just like shit in, and then you use uh you know air freshener. It's like now it smells like shit and flowers. That's the equivalent. <laughs> That's what it tastes like? No, that's not what it tastes like, but, like, adding lemon to the... Oh, okay. The okay. nasty <laughs> is like, okay, now, it's, now it tastes like lemon and this shit. Yeah. Uh. This is disgusting. Um, I would imagine that it probably tastes like rotten eggs. Mm-hmm. Rotten eggs. Is that no. kind of the, s- that's what smell the smell that they were smelling? I it didn't say that that was a smell, but that's what I that's, am assuming that was a smell because yeah. that's what is classically, right. you know, connected to this type of thing. So, 18 days in, January 4th, 1976, the Lutzes just randomly show up at their close friend Joe's house unexpectedly because they need to get this off of their chest and they need to tell someone they trust what the fuck is going on. They tell them everything and Joe really wanted to believe it, but he just didn't. He hadn't seen anything. Like, he empathized with them. He's been to the house before. He hasn't seen or felt anything. And they were kind of defeated at that because, like, they were nice about it and said, I'm sure whatever's happening is difficult. We don't know, you know. They can't relate. Like, I can't relate. Yeah, they couldn't relate. So that night, 
hoping to find some relief, George had one of his friends come over to help them bless the house one more time. So as they're going through the home, they get upstairs and hear like this booming chorus of angry, like all at once, this chorus of an angry voice yell, will you stop? Which is similar to what Father Roy heard of get out as they're doing the blessing upstairs. Uh, so a few nights later, there was a really bad storm happening and the issues they were still having from like the 18th to a few days later, like the paranormal activity didn't stop. It just got pissed off again from the blessing. Activity. Um, but your activity, I can't speak today. That's a problem. So George woke up again at 3.15 a.m. and he's trying to move in his bed, but he can't. He is completely paralyzed. He's having sleep paralysis, but he's not sleeping. He's fully awake. He just can't move. So he begins hearing his stepson's bed, which is upstairs. So two of the boys were in the same room upstairs. Um, he hears the beds slamming up and down, like just boom, 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 constant, just violently above him. And he has this, he needs to get up and he needs to check on them, but he can't. So he slowly tries to turn and he eventually turns to Kathy to tell her to wake up and do something. But Kathy's not there. He then looks up and sees her levitating above the bed and her body is very slowly moving towards the wall. All of a sudden, George feels a presence at the foot of the bed and at this point he can't even talk, he can't scream, he can't make a noise. And he describes what he saw as a hooved human-like figure. He feels this figure get into bed with him and it begins stepping on his chest. And there were shadows moving outside of the door up and down the hall as this is all happening. Levitation, bed moving, hooved human figure stepping on him. And as George is fighting with everything that he has to move or make a noise, he finally is able to scream in this like low, painful sounding groan and finally manages to break whatever this thing has a, like a hold of him. He breaks free and is able to move his arm and he grabs Kathy's arm and slowly pulls her down back onto the bed. When she hits the bed, his paralysis bro is broken and George gets up. And what happens over the next few hours is like the put the pinnacle of paranormal activity for them. So he turns and looks at Kathy after he pulls her down and he can move. And he is absolutely fucking horrified at what he sees when he looks at her. When she looked in the mirror, cause she woke up and started freaking out. Like what the fuck is he screaming at me for? Um, and she hears the beds bouncing upstairs. She looks in the mirror and she sees that her hair has turned completely white her face has deep set wrinkles and she was basically turned into what I would describe as an old hag, basically. Um, so as this is all happening, the front door was opening and shutting as the storm was going on. The dog would go in circles over and over again, growl and snarl and then submit um, regarding the boys' beds that George heard when the movie Amityville Horror was made in 2012, the director Eric Walter did extensive interviews with the family to ensure that what they were portraying was accurate. And the guys, both adults now, um, told him that both of their beds were in fact bouncing around from floor to ceiling that night and they were just hanging on for dear life as their beds were moving. Um, then all yep the the boys confirmed that that is what in fact was happening. And George, I don't think, could get upstairs. He like couldn't go to certain places in the house because he was restricted basically then all of a sudden out of nowhere everything just stopped so that morning the two boys came down in an absolute shock from fear and they were scared to even move so george was downstairs with kathy and the dog and the boys were upstairs and they just couldn't they couldn't move downstairs george was scared to go up to the boys and the boys were scared to go down by george they're terrified of each other because they didn't know what had happened. Yeah. Then little Missy comes walking out and says, what was that all about? <laughs> oh my God. Right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, fuck this shit. And they reach out a third time to Father Ray. And it wasn't until he said that, Father Ray said that you guys have to leave this home, that they knew in fact that was something they actually do need to do. <laughs> the house like they had well so they had contemplated it but the house had such a strong hold on him kind of like in the sally house where um i forget his name the house kept on wanting to pull him back it was like that the house yeah. just like it was hard for them to to leave there was something that they felt was keeping them there but they knew that they should leave 
but it they resisted at first but father ray convinced them to leave and the next day they packed up all of their clothes and necessities and they left as they drove away there was a constant banging on the van and they could hear and feel the van being knocked around from the bagging as they drove down the road oh wow what? yeah yep so after they left george contacts a dude named jerry Sullivan. Sullivan. Um, he's a parapsychologist in North Carolina and tells him what's going on. And Jerry just sent a field reporter to the house to do an initial initial investigation. Um, but they were moving way too slow for the Lutzes. So over the next few weeks, George and Kathy began telling people about their story and spreading it throughout the community. They contacted John, or sorry, they contacted Ron DeFeo's attorney, telling him of the experience as well, and that Ron getting labeled as quote sane wasn't right, and there was clearly something else going on in the home. Um, so the attorney Weber, Ron's attorney Weber, said that yo, we need to have a press conference. You need to tell your story because my client did not get treated fairly in his trial. So they hold a press conference and the media goes fucking wild after they tell their story. However, the media circus was a little bit too much for the Lutzes and they feel like they're losing control of their story. It's being called a hoax. News outlets are like putting a spin on it like they normally do. Um, So both... The Lutzes and the Weber feel like they need to like get control of the story, right? So Weber drafts up a contract for the story, signing over all rights from the Lutzes to him. So he would basically own it. In case there's ever any books or anything that would happen, he would get the rights to it. Uh, the Lutzes refuse to sign it, and after they refuse to sign it, they don't speak again. They left kind of with some bad blood there. Um, Why would they so sign th- it? Right. Right. Like... <laughs> I- yeah. So after the Weber thing was done, um, a news reporter who is very interested in the paranormal and had some contacts in the field gets the Lutzes in contact with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, in exchange for an exclusive interview, um, interview, taping, whatever, Channel 5 News gets the exclusive on this. So Ed and Lorraine Warren, if you guys don't know, I'm going to tell you, they're like the paranormal investigator, like pioneers. They're my favorite. If Yes. I mean, so they're, ever, they're both like, gone now, but... Yeah. So if there's ever a haunting or a demonic story out there from, like, the 40s to late 80s that turned into a movie, chances are Ed and Lorraine investigated the case. So Annabelle, The Conjuring, The Nun, Haunting in Connecticut, Amityville Horror, those are all Warren things. So they're a big deal. At this point, after the Warrens get contacted, this isn't like the quote Amityville horror case. It's not known as that yet. Um, it was just a haunted house. So on February 24th, 1976, Laura DiDio, the reporter who was contacted and who contacted the Warrens, um, they send a crew to the home and George is just standing up front. They tell him to go in the house and he refuses. He was actually getting physically ill sitting outside. So he just hands over the keys and lets the Warren and the key- lets the Warrens and the camera crew in the house and they vacated the home so quickly that there was still like dirty dishes and stuff sitting on the counter. Wow. Ugh. There is yeah, there was a cake in the fridge from someone's birthday. It was all still in there. So as the Warrens were checking out the house looking at the time frame of like murders and all that stuff like doing their investigation they discovered that they had a very startling connection to this case and they didn't discover this until um a little bit after this so the night that ron defeo murdered his family was the exact time and day that ed warren's mother had died november 13th 1974 at 3 15 a.m oh wow like the time stamps were exact that's Isn't weird. that crazy? That I is, didn't know that. That's kind of weird. Yeah. So Ed and Lorraine investigated by doing seances. Um, Lorraine is clairvoyant and a light trance medium, which means she can spend, sense spirits, but she doesn't communicate directly with them. She basically feels the energy out. So she felt sick in the master bedroom and could feel the violence. And Ed, who is a demonologist, is downstairs in the basement where that small room is. And he believes that evil thrives in darkness like the basement. And one thing I remember from years ago, just like reading stuff about this, is that always have your blinds open. You always want to have your blinds open in your home because you want to invite that light in. Because if your home is always dark, you're going to invite and evil's going to thrive in that place. So while in the basement, Ed commands in the Lord's name for that being to reveal itself. And he said he's never seen such an immediate response. 
to a demon responding to religious provocation. Uh, the Warrens later said that this is the most terrifying thing, whatever it is, that have, they have ever encountered. And Lorraine believed that this thing was not the ghost of the DeFeos, it was multiple demonic beings, which is what was suspected. So they plan a seance to basically confirm their suspicions. So on March 6th, the Lutzes gave the Warrens permission to hold a seance. Um, it was quite the spectacle. It was actually all recorded by the news station. Um, so teams of journalists are there. Multiple mediums are there. The Warrens invited guests, and the guest list just, like, kept growing. Um, oh, total of about 20 people. Yeah, a total of 20 people participated. George refused to enter the home, so the Lutzes weren't there. Seances are dangerous. You're opening yourself up and your home up to non-human entities, so don't fucking do it. Don't use a Ouija board. I can't say it enough. Don't be dumb. Um, so as the evening begins, everyone is like crowded in this small little table in the dining room. So Mary Pascarella, who is a psychic, is detailing out what she is seeing. Seeing Again, this is all videotaped. There is video of this. Um, Alberta Riley, she's another psychic. She's detailing out what she's seeing and feeling. The news reporters don't know what the fuck to think because they like don't believe in ghosts or anything. They just have come out and said that the house felt really off. So during the seance, Mary gets overwhelmed and decides to go upstairs to what she just like feels is her safe space in the home. And it's the one of the kids' bedrooms. So as she's laying on the bed and starts saying the Lord's Prayer, and she's reciting it, she feels a presence and looks over in the doorway into the hall and sees a group of black shadow figures peering into the room. And they are also reciting the Lord's Prayer back to her, but they're saying it backwards. Oh, I don't like that. No. Mm -hmm. So she starts to make it rain with holy water, and as she's throwing the holy water at them, reciting the Lord's Prayer, it sounds like water hitting a hot pan. Mm -hmm. Just sizzling. like sizzling. Yep. So Marvin, a news reporter who was interviewed on the documentary I watched, uh, said that Lorraine took him up to the sewing room at 3.15 a.m. And once in, they felt like they've basically entered a den of evil. And what Lorraine said that stood out to him is, I hope this is as close to hell as I ever get when she entered that room. Wow. Yeah. So the Warrens basically said, this house is fucked. We can't fix it. This is the most evil home in America, and there's nothing we can do. They can't ask a priest to exercise the home and the property because it's far too dangerous. So basically at this point, the Lutzes still own the home, and they feel helpless. They have this thing that they can't live in. So they pay the mortgage for a few more months until they give the home back to the bank. After they do that, George asks some of his buddies, including Joe... Uh, the dude we mentioned before, to go get some of their belongings, and none of his friends really know what to think about this whole ordeal. Um, but his friends go in there, and as they're in the house, they have a beer, they have a piece of cake from that birthday party, they joke about the house, and about, man, what's like, what's going on in here? Like, ooh, there's ghosts. But nothing happens. They don't get any bad vibes, and they just, like, go along with their day, get their shit, and leave. So, <laughs> which is odd to me mm -hmm. like to me that's like the home isn't haunted the people are haunted right you know um but anyway so the lutzes end up moving to california with just their necessities and they start a new life george actually gave the, they drove to the airport and george gave the car and the title to the guy at the airport who parked their car said here's the title you can have my car we don't need it oh my god we're starting over <laughs> Yeah, he gave them the car. So in May of 1976, they now live in San Diego. A year later, Hans Holzer, who is a parapsychologist and like a renowned paranormal investigator, specifically in demons. He's dead now, but he there's actually a show on Discovery Plus called The Holzer Files. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. So, that. yeah. So Holzer enters the home with Laura DiDio. She's kind of like the reporter who is stuck with the story the whole time because she's very fascinated by it. And another medium, and through their investigation, the medium connected with a male spirit guide. And while that spirit guide was contacted, Laura saw, like with her own eyes, an Adam's apple grow on the female medium as the spirit guide was contacted through her so if you guys don't know what a spirit guide is it's like when a medium gets their information through a spirit and the medium will their voice will change if it's a man their voice will get low if it's a child their voice will go into a child's voice so this woman grew an adam's apple on the throat and laura says she swears that she saw this 
And the guide actually told them that the house was built on top of an ancient burial ground, which I find fascinating because Native American stuff is not something to be messed with. No. So, um, there's I mean, a lot of possible. there's a lot of native stuff in that mm-hmm. area. Yeah. So that's definitely, you know, if that land was cursed by something, if even that small property was cursed by something, that would definitely be a reason for this all to be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so meanwhile, in San Diego, the Lutzes contact a publisher where they get a book deal. It's a bestseller, as we know, immediately. Um, This was the first major paranormal story of a haunting that became international news, aside from The Exorcist, which they both happened at around the same time. Then the first Amityville movie hit theaters, and people from all over the world would come and visit the house because they wanted to see the house from the movie and the book. The movie was super dividing throughout like America and the world. You either believed it or you didn't. There is no like, oh, maybe it could be true. It's like either this is bullshit or this is terrifying and it happened. So the Lutzes go on their PR tour. They're on news shows, basically telling their story to promote the book. But they also just wanted to get their truth out of this is what truly happened to us. Now, Weber, the attorney for Ron DeFeo, was initially very interested in the lore of the house, both during the trial and after, because Ron already told him, like, something paranormal is going on here. So Weber was already super interested in it. Um, However, after the book comes out, he claims that during that meeting that we had talked about in the contract, he claims that George and Kathy Lutz did approach him, but it was about an idea for a book. And he says that they said, quote, we created this horror story over many bottles of wine. It's a hoax. So I don't know. I I don't know. I I so many things have happened and even the kids speaking out of what happened and that priest they're still I mean, speaking out of priest, on what happened yeah. like i listened yes. to a podcast where they interviewed one of the sons who's now mm-hmm. in his like 40s or something mm-hmm. you know just talking about how terrifying it was and that like yeah you know i think that that weber just wanted money which he got so Weber brought a lawsuit against the Lutzes for taking the story of the haunting to another publishing partner. He demanded $60 million. They settled out of court for $2,500 plus $15,000 for his services connected with the book and subsequent movie. So he did not get what he asked for. There is also audio, though, of Weber, Kathy... Oops, sorry, I just hit my microphone of Weber, Kathy, and George talking about the book and movie deals, and they do admit to embellishing the story to Weber, but they stand firm that the fundamentals of the story, of, like, the major things happening, mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. Um, I've heard that, yeah. too, where it's, like, yeah. and most of it was real, but, you know. Like, small details were mm-hmm. changed, yeah. So, like, and, like, as we know, books and movies get embellished quite a bit. Oh, oh yeah. Um. So, after the movies come out, George and Kathy take a lie detector test about their story and pass with flying colors. Those tests are definitely not foolproof. They can't even be used in court, but I just feel like that says a little bit something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, through interviews, we find out that Daniel Lutz also claims, so the son later on, claims that he was possessed by a spirit much like Regan McNeil in The Exorcist. He actually, like, says that he was possessed like that. Yeah. Um, Their other son, Christopher, insists that he did have multiple run-ins with the paranormal, including the time he saw a presence as, like, a definite shadow in the shape of a man that moved towards him really quick and then dissipated. Mm -hmm. So, in 1980, Reverend Neil Smith, who had done hundreds of exorcisms himself, and he got connected with the family while on their PR tours, um, he... I guess looked right at Kathy and knew that they were still affected by this. Moving didn't really do much for them. Um, so when the Lutzes moved and they still had all this really heavy, bad energy connected to them, Neil ended up blessing them. He was one of the only priests who wanted to do anything with them to help them out because everyone else was scared of it. He did a blessing and he exercised George and it's called a rite of separation. And so that broke the influence on the house from the family because he believed that the house was the problem. It just, it was such a a heavy thing that that negative energy had followed him. So they did a rite of separation and the attachment broke. And 
slowly, like, George did get better. The family got better. And they still talk about it, like we said. The house does still remain. And it's, like, iconic quarter moon windows that, like we said, look like, like creepy eyes, basically, mm-hmm. have been replaced. The siding is no longer black. It's had many occupants, occupants come and go over the years. However, not a single foreigner owner, former owner, sorry, I can't talk, since then has come forward with any paranormal experiences. Not a one. The address, hmm. yeah, that's a little weird, right? Yeah. So, like, I don't know. My theory about this whole thing is I think that they came into this really depressed, really heavy feeling not a great vibe going on. It was very close after the murderers. There's just a lot of heaviness happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Lutzes got the brunt of that heaviness and their energy didn't help. Right. They already came in with, you know, we got we have all these kids. We just moved here. Mm-hmm. Moving in itself is That's really stressful. Yeah. Plus mm-hmm. having like a million kids. Ugh, come on. Yeah. I know. I couldn't. I couldn't. And they kept all that shit. They kept all of the That's items. So they kept the too. bed frames. So weird. So and it's just, to me, it was just like a shitstorm of bad things that they shouldn't have done. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the blessing, I think that maybe it would have been a good idea if done correctly, or maybe the house just needed an exorcism right off the bat. I don't know. But no one has come forward saying that anything else has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the address has also been changed. For people to stop going to it, which now you can look up the new address. So, <laughs> like, I don't know how much that helped, but yeah. <laughs> so, paranormal investigators and movie directors who have worked directly with the family over the years all say that after talking to the family one-on-one, you can see and feel the fear just, like, coming off of them. And it's very clear that whether something happened or not, the Lutzes believe... 100% with every fiber of their being that something happened, something is demonic in this house, and the Warrens believe them 100% as well. So, I mean, that's the story, and it's, it is. It's one of those things where either you believe it or you don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like... And everyone who's talked... I feel like something definitely happened to them in that house, but mm-hmm. I kind of feel like it was almost like transferred to them like it it went from from ron and was transferred Mm -hmm. to them and then when they moved Mm -hmm. that like detached it from that house and it just kind of followed them lingering in them Mm -hmm. yeah i tried to see if anything paranormal happened after they moved to california i didn't all i found was that they just still felt that heavy heavy oppression Yeah, it's just like a crazy story, and it's it's the flies to me. Like I've never, I'm gonna admit, I have never seen the whole movie because I'm a little bitch baby and I hate horror movies. Really? But I did watch like I've clips. I've seen the whole movie. I hate them twice. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate horror movies. But I did watch clips of it of like what apparently happened versus like what was in the movie, yeah. and it's accurate also side note the director who directed the, directed the one in 2012 he's like kind of hot he is, yeah. he, is. <laughs> he i was watching it i was like oh my god who is that because i was like watching it but like doing other things and i googled him i was like oh my god he's hot yeah who's the director eric smith i think was his name or something? i don't know i had he it in here name, but he's hot but he's attractive <laughs> he's cute but yeah, he he sat down and did a lot of interviews with the family and tried to get that movie. I think that's one that Ryan Reynolds was in. Oh, yeah. yeah. He tried to get it as accurate as possible and he did his research. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Ron DeFeo, if whether he was possessed or not, the whole, everything happening at three o'clock really creeps me out too. Yeah. No, thank you. Oh, yeah. Eric Walter. Okay. Yeah. He's a cutie. He is a cutie. So, uh, yeah, guys, that is Amityville Horror, and um, we never did housekeeping at the top of this episode, so we'll do it now. True. True, true, true. Housekeeping. So, here's the thing, listeners. We have. We love you. We love you. We've spent tens of dollars and <laughs> hundreds of hours <laughs> <laughs> to be able to bring you this podcast uh, to our dear listeners for free. 
We put a ton of work into it. It's a labor of love, and we want to hear from you in the form of a review. So if you can please like, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you listen, drop us a review. It's going to help us move up the charts. Please share us with your friends. And uh, even though we haven't gotten an email in a while uh, to read, we're s- we still want them. So if you have any um, strange stories or, you know, paranormal, anything that's happened to you, anything weird or interesting, send it to contact at perfectstranglers.com. That's right. God, Brie, you're so good at doing the housekeeping. <laughs> you're just so good at it. It's so beautiful. Anyway, so thank oh, you. Oh, Nicole's line is thanks, Stranglers, so I won't say it. But thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the story. If you have any uh, anything that you want us to cover, you know, if you have a case, you're like, we need to hear these bitches talk about it. Send it on over, and we'll do it, because we're always looking for suggestions. We've had a few good ones on our Instagram, so mm-hmm. we'll add them to our list. But thank you guys, and we will chat with you next Thursday. Bye, everyone. Talk to you next week. Bye, guys. Bye, Stranglers.